Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Today's episode is going to be a little bit more didactic than some of my others, but I think it's a really important topic. Lots of us are approached by parents or pharmaceutical reps about using psychogenomic testing to evaluate psychotropic medications with the thought that this test is going to tell us exactly what's going to work. And we all know that isn't the case, but I thought it would be really important to hear the perspective from a psychiatrist. Dr. Lisa Namaro is a board-certified psychiatrist who is triple-boarded in pediatrics, child psychiatry, and general psychiatry. She has worked in a pediatric healthcare setting for the past 27 years, directing the consult service to inpatient pediatrics and the access mental health programs for pediatricians. Her areas of research have been pharmacogenetics and the impact of clinical pathways in standardized care for eating disorders, somatic symptoms, and related disorders, and delirium, and serves on the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Committee on the Physically Ill Child. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Namaro. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And this is a really challenging topic. And I am not going to lie, I'm a little intimidated because this feels like going back to biochem. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the P450 system in the liver, we always knew it was there, you know, we just didn't know we could test for it. I remember a biochem exam I had that was, the whole exam was you have a Petri dish and you put this chemical in and you add this and then you get this. Propose the pathway. And I just about like threw up. It was like, what? (laughs) So uh, I'm hoping it'll be a little easier than that. So let's just start out about your training um, and how you got to be a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Well, so as an undergrad, I was asked to do some research in neuroscience. Um, Back then it was called psychobiology, not neuroscience. And so I always knew that the brain was kind of the cool, the last frontier But I also loved kids and, in fact, knew that I was going to take off a year between college and med school to teach kids for a while. So initially, I thought pediatrics for sure. And then I ended up teaching in a school for emotionally disturbed kids. Not a great term, but that's what the school calls it. And by the end of that year, I said, I have to understand why kids behave like that. And so I thought child psychiatry. And then I realized that the way to get to child psychiatry was through adult psychiatry. And that totally bummed me out. And I didn't want to do that. And then I was looking in a book because we had books back then of residencies. And there was a new thing called the triple board training program, which allowed you to get to child psychiatry through pediatrics and end up with three board certifications and do the least amount of adult psychiatry. And you know, I joke about it. I mean, you absolutely have to have adult psychiatry for child psychiatry, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time with adults. So this way I got, you know, it was really like hitting two birds with one stone. I got my little pediatrics, I got my boards, felt good about that. 
could be a pediatrician if I wanted to, but really I did that on the way to, to child pageantry. I love triple boarded folks because I think you really understand where pediatricians are coming from mm-hmm. and where we struggle. And then you have the expertise to know what you can offer. So it's, it's a nice uh, dual language, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, honestly, and uh, don't tell traditionally trained child psychiatrists this, but I do worry that child psychiatrists who are trained traditionally don't know how to speak to pediatricians as well. Well, I, I think as a pediatrician, we appreciate you. <laughs> so let's get down to talking about pharmacogenomics. And I thought the first thing we could do is, could you just define what that yeah. is? Yes, super. So pharmacogenomics is the portion, references the portion of the genome, which involves genes that have to do with pharmacology. That's really what it means. I will say that now that term is going out of favor and it is being replaced by pharmacogenetics because that references the individual genes themselves. So I've had to make a switch more recently, but it really just references the genes that are involved in pharmacology. So that's metabolism and targets of medications. So this pertains to lots of different medications, just not not just psychiatric meds. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it has been picked up quicker and more effectively by other specialties, primarily cardiology because of Coumadin and 2D6 and oncology because of tamoxifen and other agents. And so there was much less resistance in those fields than in the psychiatry field. Well, so let's like venture right into (laughs) the myths and truths about pharmacogenomics. And I think as a pediatrician, when this first came out and when we first had some of the reps of these tests, that somehow we were going to be able to do this test on a very like simple swab and they were actually cutting some financial breaks and Medicaid was covering it. And we were going to get information back that was going to say, these are the medications that are going to work best for this child. And you might want to consider low doses or high doses, and it will cover like antidepressants and atypicals and ADHD meds and parents were like, this is awesome. And we're thinking this is great. And then we order the tests and have no idea what it means and come to find out that's maybe not true. So dive in. That's perfect. So you heard it correctly. That is what the industry and its reps wanted you to think. That is exactly right. So you didn't misunderstand. That is what they were promoting. That was what they were detailing. They were detailing that if we tested for this panel of genes, we at the lab level could put all those results together for you. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about what the results were and how to interpret it. Don't worry. We're going to tell you how to interpret it because we're going to give you a list of medications and they're going to be in green, yellow, red boxes. And basically what that's going to tell you is green is good, yellow, use caution, red, don't use. So don't worry about it. And all of that will help your patient. That is what they said. And that's what we thought. And apparently that's maybe not true. So here's what's true. What is true is that genes do code for both the enzymes that metabolize medicines, and they also code for the proteins that are 
the the site of the action of medication. And again, that's throughout. That's not just for psychiatry. In psychiatry, it factors out a little easier. It factors out in what we call the pharmacodynamic genes and the pharmacokinetic genes. Pharmacokinetic genes are the genes that code for the enzymes that break down medication, kinetics. The pharmacodynamic genes and that category refers to the genes that code for things like receptors or transporters, the things that are more, the proteins that are more up in the brain that serve as the target for the medication itself. So that's true. It is also true that due to work that has been done in the bench, this is not the, the companies didn't do this work, the Karolinska Institute actually did this work, which is that for every gene, there is an identification of the allelic variants that cause trouble for that gene. So that those are that science. So specifically speaking, because we're going to get to some of the genes that are more the most specific, but let's just take the gene that's called 2D6, the CYP2D6 gene. That gene codes for the enzyme called 2D6. And as you said at the beginning, here we go with biochemistry, most of the metabolism of the medicines that we take, not just psychiatric, but across the board are metabolizing the liver. Remember, we learned that some were kidney, but primarily there was liver. And in the liver, there are enzyme systems. And the most predominant enzyme system is the P450 system. And that's what we learned in biochem. Within that P450 system are different enzymes, lots of different enzymes, and they all have numbers. CYP just refers to the cytochrome itself um, within the P450 system. And one enzyme is 2D6 and one enzyme 2C19 and another one is 2C9 and another one is, you know, 3A4. That's all the bench science that is out there. What, what the definition of the human genome gave us was what intact genes look like. That's what the Human Genome Project was. And the Karolinska Institute began to identify what allelic variants caused problems. So if 2D6 has allelic variants star 4 and star 9, and this is all from the Karolinska Institute, then the enzyme that that gene produces, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a problem with that enzyme. Again, that's all the bench science. That's so important. So let me see if I've got this because like my head is already spinning. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to just, I'm going to be honest. So, okay. so the enzymes kind of tell you how fast or how slow a medication might take effect and how fast it might get taken out of the system. So Leah, you're jumping to the clinical to, oh, to okay. what's happening. Okay. In the, now that's important, right? That's in the end, that's what we want. So in the end, what those, what the lab can tell you is if there is this problem in that gene, the enzyme that's going to be produced by that gene is going to function rapidly. If there's this problem in that gene, the enzyme that that gene produces is going to function poorly or maybe not at all. So the allele is the genotype. The allelic variant is the genotype. The metabolizer status, which is what you talked about, is it fast, is it slow, whatever, that's the phenotype, right? So this discussion, Leah, is both back to biochem and it's also back to genetics 101. 
you know, genotype and phenotype. Yeah. And if you threw in um, neuroanatomy, you got me at my like not strong points. Oh, other than maybe statistics. So uh, yeah. You have to do neuroanatomy. So um, I'm just for my listeners, you know, again, if they're having any trouble going, wow, this sounds pretty overwhelming. You know, they have good company and I appreciate you, you know, kind of teasing this out. So I'm going to just let you kind of keep talking about. So what, what does this mean in real life for us? So what I just said, all of what I just said, because you had said, which is what is the truth and what is not the truth, you know, what was, however you said it, that was perfect. So what I just told you, that's all the science. And that is true, right? If there's this, these two alleles present in that gene, the enzyme that that gene is going to produce is going to have a problem. Okay, that's all defined and true. Here's where it gets more complicated. Again, I'm going to have to use some bias. I thought it was already complicated. (laughs) (laughs) No, here's where, now the the analogy for- I like analogies. This is because this was the analogy for me. It's BUN and creatinine. So when you, when we had to dose gentamicin in the NICU back in those days, and there was any kidney issue, you had to dose gentamicin based on creatinine. It was very linear. And there was a way to modify gentamicin dose depending on kidney function because gentamicin is metabolized by the kidneys. So if you have a kidney problem, you can't give as much gentamicin. That was right. That was pretty linear. Same with lithium, quite linear. But to stick with pediatrics, we'll, we'll go with gentamicin. That's the analogy you want to kind of be thinking about. It's not as mathematical because the kidney is much more linear than the liver. GFR is GFR. You know, it's, again, it's quite mathematical. The, the, the liver isn't quite as mathematical, but the concept is the same. If you have elevated creatinine, you don't have good kidney function, you need less gentamicin. In fact, you remember you changed both dose and interval. You went from Q8 to Q12. That's because there was a problem with gentamicin metabolism. It didn't mean don't use gentamicin. It just meant dose it differently, more, you know, less and uh, over a long duration. That's the analogy for these genes. I'm with you so far. So if you have a problem with 2D6 and you want to use a medicine that's metabolized by 2D6, dose differently. Okay. That's the thing. Okay. Now, again, where the industry failed us, and then I have to say where child and adolescent psychiatry didn't keep up really, or because the industry oversold child and adolescent academic psychiatry said, wait a second, we're not there yet. What are you guys saying? Hold on, you know? And so it, it, the, the industry got away from us. That's really how I think. It was like they got out there with the newest antibiotic and said it was much better than gentamicin before the studies had a chance to say, no, it's not. Gentamicin is still the best, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, the and I think pediatrics got, and family practice like ran with it. They ran with it because why wouldn't you? It we were sold. Exactly. Exactly. But what really looks true is that in medicines that heavily rely on these certain genes, the tolerance of those medicines is going to be impacted by these gene findings. Now, the other thing is every 
gene medication association is different. So let's take the ADHD medication, Stratera, atomoxetine. Atomoxetine is absolutely solely metabolized by 2D6. It is what's called in the you know pharmacogenetic kinetic kinetic world a sole substrate. Like 2D6 is really the only way to metabolize atomoxetine. So if 2D6 is a poor metabolizer in an individual or has no activity, null, there is a high potential for a problem with regular dosing with Stratera. We all learned that the hard way. I remember prescribing Stratera. This is before we knew about all of this kind of testing or had access to it and prescribing, you know, 18 milligrams and the child was asleep for two days, you know. So some of this we would find out the hard way, but that's what was going on for that kid who didn't do well on the Stratera. It's incredibly likely that the problem was with 2D6. So right? if, and let me just make sure I understand this. So for example, if you were a 2D6 poor metabolizer or no, no action that the Stratera that you gave is going to hang around at higher doses and have more side effects Correct. than if it was functioning normally or even better than normally. Correct. Okay. Phew. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And it turns out that 2D6 is very involved in lots of psychiatric medications. That's what made that gene really relevant in psychiatry. So what we have learned and what the industry didn't tell us, many of us, is that certain genes are more relevant to psychiatric medications than other genes. And what the industry was doing with its panel is putting them all together as if they were all equal, adding together all those results and giving you that red, yellow, green. What we're saying, those of us who are trying to keep on top of this and look at it and research it a bit, we're saying the actual gene results could be very relevant to the medicine that you want to prescribe, but you don't want to let those results direct which medication to select. We want you to use those results once you've decided what medication is going to be the best for that individual. So to go back to oncology and tamoxifen, and I believe that the association with tamoxifen is with 2C9. You're an oncologist. You want to prescribe tamoxifen because that's what the protocol tells you to do. On the other hand, you find out that the patient in front of you is null activity for 2C19. You're going to have to find an alternative to tamoxifen. Or if you dose tamoxifen, you're going to give the exposure dose much, much lower and see if your patient can tolerate it. So let me stop right there because I think you said something super important. And that was pick first and then looking at the, the gene function is, is this going to be, how is it going to work? Correct. Rather than looking at a whole bunch of things and saying, of all of those, which, which is it going to work? Because that isn't really how it helps. Well, what it does even more important is it makes lots of us providers deviate from evidence-based medicine. The example of that and the key example of that, and uh, we did a study of child psychiatrists where this happened to them as well, 
which is when you tell prescribers to prescribe based on the findings, let the findings drive your selection, everyone who was being treated for depression ended up being treated with desbenlafaxine. Which most of us which, don't use in pediatrics. And as of right now, has no evidence base. That's pristique. So it has evidence in the adult world. It's FDA approved. When they tried to replicate that in the pediatric world, there was no efficacy. And so we were finding that all these kids were being put on desbenlafaxine because desbenlafaxine stays in the green bin on every single person's genetic testing. Why? Because none of the genes that are being tested for on the gene site, genomine, and other panels actually are relevant to the metabolism of desbenlafaxine. So desbenlafaxine stays green. So it doesn't really tell you anything about desbenlafaxine at all. It's it just like it's just like one of the ones that's not affected. So we'll just put it over here, which is kind of misleading. Correct. Correct. Huh. Correct. I, and, and I will tell you, I have not prescribed Pristique because I saw it in the green bin, but I didn't know that was why. That's why. That's why. And again, that's what wasn't clear. I think from the industry's perspective, what they would say is we were just listing all the psychiatric medications. If you turn to page six or seven, where many of these companies do give you a chart of each medication and which enzyme metabolizes it, you could ultimately see that, oh, actually there is no circle, black circle or colored circle next to, hmm, so none of the genes that are on this panel have to do with this, but you'd have to dig to find that. And that wasn't the way the results were being detailed. So based on what you're saying, so here's an example. Let's say I've got a 12-year-old and they have an anxiety disorder. They've seen a therapist and we're stuck and this kiddo's really having problems with function. And I'm like, huh, let's use a medication for anxiety and for example, Ecitalopram or Lexapro. And I'm gonna gonna pick that. And I'm because I've been paying attention, I hope I'd like start low and go slow. I might ask the parents, has anybody in the family had trouble with that? And then if they have trouble, I might think about another medication. Where in that process should I be thinking about genetic testing that might be helpful. So it's not at the beginning. It's not before I even prescribe, right? Right. So just like most tests in, in medicine, there is a sense that universal testing of everybody all the time is not cost-effective. So that's kind of what drives the don't test everybody right up front. Now, we actually have developed a couple screening questions that I think can be quite helpful to determine whether or not the kid that's sitting in front of you might have some problems within the P450 system, right? So one of the things that can be helpful, but not absolute and variable is the family history. You know, what medications have other individuals been on in your family, particularly first degree relatives and what has happened. But the other thing is that in the pediatric world, there are a lot of medicines that are used in pediatrics that are 2D6 substrates. So for instance, in the pain world, the biggest 
problem is coding, right? Which is, in fact, why it's been taken out of lots of pediatric hospitals and maternity, you know, OBGYN, because codeine isn't active until it's metabolized by TB6 and becomes morphine. And it is a sole substrate. And that's, and as we talked about, the enzyme problem can be that the enzyme has no activity, is too slow or too fast. And so in, in the field of OB, it was really learned that if you were treating your mom with Tylenol number three, and that mom was a fast metabolizer, you could be producing an awful lot of, you know, morphine too quickly, and that could then impact the baby. So if you ask about codeine containing pain medication, that can be a little window into 2D6. The other little window into 2D6 function is pseudoephedrine, diphenhydramine, dexmethorphan. So cold and cough medicines are 2D6. So you guys in pediatrics, and I remember this in my pediatric clinic, you know, the kid, you gave a little Benadryl for, and they had the wackiest reaction. You're like, whoa, what is going on? Or the pseudoephedrine, and they're up for four days. So in general, pediatrics gets, you know, doesn't even like cold and cough medications and you don't use it, but sometimes families use it anyway. So it's still worth asking. I was just going to say, is that partly why those meds came off the recommendations? Because there was so much problem with how kids were metabolizing them. And so some were getting into trouble. I think, I think in at least what I learned in pediatrics is that they just didn't work. And so it was just better to use, you know, chicken soup and rest, you know, than those kind of medications. For sure, the codeine issue was because of 2D6. Well, and the, was- Bene- the, the Benadryl, so just going back to that for a second, because I, we don't really, I mean, I haven't used codeine in a long time and we don't recommend cold medications for kids under six at all, but Benadryl sometimes still gets used in kids and like for an allergic reaction, for yeah. example, but yeah. it right. always seems like with those little ones, it has that sort of the, the paradoxical, effect, yeah, where they get like super ramped up and as opposed to being really sedated, does that have something to do with this whole system? It could, it could. Okay. Um, and it's just an interesting, hmm, you know, so some targeted screening questions might suggest to you, oh, maybe, maybe there's a little too much here and we should have more information before we prescribe. On the other hand, there's a bit of a devil's advocate to that because I love your clinical scenario where you've got the patient in front of you, you've referred to therapy, the therapist says, oh my gosh, I can't get anywhere. We can't use cognitive behavioral therapy. This kid is just not able to do the work. And very interestingly, OCD and kids with like social anxiety disorder should probably get to medication more quickly than other types of anxiety disorders because it so precludes their being able to do therapy. So that's the aside. That's step one. Step two is what is the evidence-based medicine tell us? What category, what medicines? Then really it is the SSRIs. That's what the evidence-based says. It then gets even more interesting because if as a pediatrician, you want to stick with the SSRIs that are FDA approved, you know, so both Lexapro and fluoxetine are FDA approved, at least for treatment of adolescent depression, which we all feel also means that its tolerability in the adolescent world was good enough that the FDA felt like they they would approve it, right? Lexapro is primarily metabolized by 2C19, whereas Prozac is 2D6. 
So even without pharmacogenetic testing, but one of the things that pharmacogenetic testing helped us understand is what med was metabolized by what enzyme. If you got that history that I was just talking about of the kid who didn't do well on Benadryl, didn't do well on pseudoephedrine, and mom had a terrible codeine reaction, you say, hmm, I'm going to avoid the SSRI that I know is more dependent on 2D6. I will not do fluoxetine, but the good news is I have Lexapro as an option. That makes that makes sense. Boiling it down. I mean, I, I'm going to have to go with like super practical. So I yeah. appreciate I appreciate yeah. that. So, so that's helpful. So let's go back a minute to the parent because parents are hearing about this stuff it's and they can, and they say, "Hey, my kid's been on several different medications. Can we please do gene sight?" Does that make sense at that point? It does. But and again, different states have different companies, and you know. But what I would say is, if you get the testing. Look at the gene findings themselves. And the genes that are the most significant for us so far, and there might be more, so we'll, you know, we'll follow along with the research. But what I would do if I got that testing is I turn to page seven and I look at the gene results themselves. And somewhere in that result packet is both the genotype and the phenotype. So I would look straight to 2D6 and tell me what is the problem. And it, I don't have to know the, the, it'll tell you the allelic problem, but really the phenotype that the lab tells you is the right phenotype. You can go with that. Those of us in the field have had a problem with the red, yellow, green. But if you go to the gene findings themselves, that's where the money is. And for the medications that are most impacted, is there like an easy list for us to know, like, Okay, Prozac is a 2D6, but Lexapro is a C19. I mean, is there a way that we're going to know that? So in the article that you are attaching to this podcast, the, you know, a review for child and adolescent psychiatrists, and I could have put pediatricians also, but we gave a condensed chart with that. So there's the condensed chart with the, I think we included both the atypical antipsychotics, which again, you're rarely going to prescribe, but definitely the SSRIs and which enzyme metabolizes which of the SSRIs. Years and years ago, before genes, before gene, the gene was a pharmacologist, Dr. Flockhart, developed the Flockhart chart. And that is where we all used to go years and years ago. If we wanted to know what enzyme metabolized that medicine. Now, it was rare that in clinical medicine, we even looked at that, but that existed forever. It was called the Flockhart chart. Every single medication that is approved by the FDA, you ha- has, it has to be known what enzyme metabolizes it. That was all before the human genome. What the Human Genome Project gave us was which gene was responsible for that enzyme. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So it it sounds like what would be really helpful on these reports if it listed, these are the medications and these are the enzymes that have to do with this particular medication. And based on that, this medication, this is how it might be metabolized. It is there. It's in the report. Ah, we just have it's to. It's like on page eight, nine, ten. It's in the fine. Again. It's in the fine print. <laughs> it's there. It, the problem is that isn't the way it was detailed, right? Everyone was the first thing you see is the red, yellow, green. 
But if you turn the page, for most companies, it's there. You look up the medicine and you look across on the chart and you see which is the enzyme that metabolizes it. And if it's a really good chart, it should tell you if for that patient, there's a problem. See, I think what some do is they give you that chart, but then you have to turn back to page three to see, was there a problem with that gene? Does that, you know, does that make sense? So it's almost like we should put a bit of blinders on for the red, yellow, green Definitely. to start. I mean, maybe you could look at it. You could look at it later, exactly. but exactly look at it later because there are other genes. So just to, to get, you know, a, a little further down two of the pharmacodynamic genes that seem very interesting, but we're still looking at the data is the gene that codes for the serotonin transporter. That's the enzyme up in the brain that takes serotonin out of the synapse and puts it back in the neuron. So it's a transporter, puts it back in. The serotonin reuptake inhibitors block that transporter. That's what it does. And by blocking that transporter, it allows more serotonin to stay rather than being picked back up. So that's where the SSRIs do their thing. So a lot of research has looked at if there's a problem in the gene that codes for the serotonin transporter, is there going to be a problem with SSRIs globally? And the findings have been mixed and is not yet as robust as the findings for 2D6 and 2C19, which is more like BUN and creatinine, right? The red, yellow, green is also incorporating the serotonin transporter gene information. It's also incorporating the serotonin receptor gene information, putting it all together, math, you know, coming up with that red, yellow, green. And we don't know yet. What is the relative contra contribution of the serotonin transporter gene? It's interesting, but the data isn't as robust as for the pharmacokinetic gene. So there's a whole lot of stuff that gets thrown in there that just confuses and may not be helpful at this point. Correct. Correct. And then and the worst is if it adds up to put the serotonin reuptake inhibitors all in red, when that's where the evidence base is causing a practitioner to feel like, oh my God, I can't prescribe those. I'll just go to the prestige. Exactly. I see. Oh, I see. Gosh. So, and then there's the other part is they do give us information, whether it's helpful or not, about the ADHD meds. What about that piece? So my understanding, and to to avoid actually using industry names, one of the one of the main industry commercial labs took the ADHD panel off the market because they said the data wasn't as robust that putting all those genes together helped outcome, whereas putting all those genes together for depression and anxiety, they said that data was stronger. So you may not be able to get the ADHD, what was called the ADHD panel. And it is true. Adderall does a little 2D6, but not primarily. Methylphenidate, also a little 2D6, but not primarily. So guanfacine, clonidine, there's some involvement, but it isn't, it isn't as strong. The strongest association in the ADHD world, though, is the atomoxetine and 2D6. So it might be helpful for that one. Correct. I, I honestly think if there's just like a couple of takeaways today is one is look, don't look at page one to start, pick your med and then start looking further. And this might be applicable when it comes to psychopharm. 
is maybe for the SSRIs, it could be helpful. And that's probably where we should just stop at that. Is that, do I have that right for where we are right now? Yes. So I would say this so far, and Leah, if I can give a plug for my colleague. Absolutely. Interviewing at another point. So this is where you'll get the stuff you'll get from Dr. Strawn, who has really been working on the relevancy of these genes and what are the most relevant gene medication pairings. And again, this is going on in oncology all the time. The, the cancer treatment pathway is being determined by consensus, but you got everyone's hearing about personalized oncologic care, because even though that chemotherapy agent could be the right one for that cancer. Is it the right one for you? Do you personally, individually have the genes that make this most relevant? So that's called gene medication pairing. It's the same. That's the same. I know that Prozac has great data for depression, but is it the right one for you personally? That's where the gene findings help. As soon as you said pairing, I was just like, my brain went to my ADHD moment was hmm, wine and cheese, which would go with what? <laughs> or you pairing. Yes, exactly. So, so it's, it's, it's so the Dr. Strong and Dr. Ramsey and the work out of Cincinnati Children's that has been absolutely amazing has given us data for some significant relevancy. One is you know, atomoxetine and 2D6. Another one is sertraline and 2C19. The other one is Lexapro Selexa and 2C19. Prozac's a little more complicated because Prozac's metabolized by 2D6, but it also inhibits 2D6. It gets a little, it's still important to me that they're connected. And if I saw a poor 2D6 metabolizer, I still might use a different SSRI. But, um, and they've done some work with Abilify and 2D6. So, their work is really helping us pair the red and white wine with dessert or appetizer. <laughs> and that's where the money is. That's where the money is. I mean, what I think is I'm going to see a patient, I'm going to think Prozac, and then it's going to be so easy to get the pharmacogenetic results. I might wait until I see what the 2D6 status is before I proceed, but I've chosen Prozac because it's the right medication for the job and because that's where the evidence base is, not because it was green. Do you think it would make a difference in, for example, if you had the genetic testing to know, like, would I go with a 2D6, like a Prozac or a C19, like a Lexapro? Exactly. Yes. Could, right. So really could. what I might say is let's get 2D6 and 2C19 at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, and then you and I, when we had talked before, there's another piece that just makes this a little more complicated. So we talked about family history. We talked about reactions to other medications. We yes. didn't really talk about that if you're taking co-occurring medications that could affect yes. things. And then there's epigenetics. Yes. So you want to take us there? Great. So... The other thing, if we remember just general pharmacology in med school is if you're taking, let's use Prozac because Prozac inhibits 2D6, even though 2D6 also metabolizes it. So if you're taking Prozac, your 2D6 function is already going to be reduced. If you then add another medicine that is metabolized by 2D6, you could have a problem. And if you notice, we use the word could or might 
or possible or are vulnerable to have a problem because it is an absolute. Genes are not absolute and they're not absolute because of lots of reasons. But yes, that also has to be taken into consideration. So the Cincinnati group actually has an article about be careful with Abilify because lots of people are adding Abilify to the SSRIs because the pharmaceutical companies have lots of commercials that say Abilify helps augment antidepressants. If, if Prozac is the antidepressant you're using though, you could have a problem with Abilify because Abilify is metabolized by 2D6 and Prozac's inhibiting it. Oh, this makes so much sense. I'm just thinking in my head. I mean, I really... I mean, honestly, there was a time when I probably was using atypicals way more than I should have. And now I try to be much more careful and talk with my psychiatric colleagues through our psychiatric access program before we go there. Yes. And so now I can see why that, I, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. On the other hand, if you're taking Lexapro, you shouldn't have a metabolism problems with a bill. Yeah. You could have another problem, but you sure. not it still might not work. But. <laughs> it might not work, but you won't have, but, but you won't have that, that issue. Yeah. And you're hearing me throw out the gene medication pairings only because I've looked at that Flockhart chart for 15 years, you know, like once you're into this, there aren't hundreds of these enzymes that are relevant and it isn't that hard ultimately to learn how the SSRIs factor themselves out how the atypical antipsychotics factor themselves out across these enzyme systems and in the ADHD world, you know? So like you wouldn't necessarily want to combine Stratera with Prozac, same issue. Stratera definitely needs 2D6 for its metabolism, no question, end of story. It's even in the package insert. So, you know, you, you'll, you'll see them play themselves out again and, and you can ultimately sort of memorize it. But in that article, there really is a, a simple chart and you can see. Well, this is very helpful. I Again, I think it's just, if you can boil it down so it's not so overwhelming yeah. that there may be some medications going to get, I, and I think that's important because we do layer on things. And I guess where for me, it gets really complicated is kids that may be in the community mental health system or have been in inpatient psychiatric and they're on like five, six meds and they get discharged from those systems and then they come to primary care and things are not going well. And I've had some kids that are on two atypicals and, you know, and they're like, can you refill these? And I'm like, I, this is overwhelming. I'm not sure if this is right or if there's a problem, where, where do you even start? So again, these psychiatric access programs that are around the country can really be helpful. And I'll put in a link to a map that shows which states have those, because I think that's ideally where we could get some handholding, because that's a hard thing to get handed to really care. You know, and heartbreaking that, that we don't have a system that cares for these kids in the way that they should be cared for and that it falls on primary care. Yeah, that is absolutely a heartbreak. I think it's up to 37 states for the I think you're right. Yeah. Child and adolescent access programs, which is that that part's exciting. Well, and I think because one of the other things that uh, you know, as kids in foster care and kids younger and younger are are on multiple medications, and oftentimes, I mean, I don't think most pediatricians are prescribing like six things off the top. So right. a lot of times, there's they're coming from psychiatry, but we don't get much in the way of directions about what to do, you know, because they. They are getting discharged from systems once they get, quote, stable, 
you know, but it's like, well, how long do you leave them on this stuff? And which one do you get rid of first? And how do you do that? I mean, it's complicated. Right, right. Yes. And I would say just even knowing some of this stuff that we talked about, even if what you're doing is just saying, I see that there could be a potential interaction in those meds that you've been prescribed, even if that prescriber is still prescribing, you then just enter the discussion that says, please watch, you know, please watch your child closely for side effects that might include this, 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 because that's the the vulnerability model. The vulnerability model, like, again, I'll go back to oncology, the BRCA gene, it doesn't say you will get breast cancer just as you are more vulnerable for the potential in the development of breast cancer. We need to follow you more carefully. Right. right. And that's, that's what I think, even, you know, with some of these gene findings, that if I think Prozac is absolutely the right medication. It really seems like that's the right medication, but I might think there could be a 2D6 problem Then I might go even lower and slower and watch them more carefully and engage in a discussion that says, you know, let's just follow you more carefully. Please make sure to report to me any problem, you know, that kind of thing. So going back to our first, our case, our 12-year-old who is on Lexapro, is that, should we have picked it and then done the gene type testing for the first go round? Or would you say that it's certainly reasonable to say, let's try this first. And then if we need to switch to something else, maybe that's the time to look at genetic testing. Yes. So I would say if you get an uncomplicated medication tolerance history, so no, my child, no, 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 they've taken cough and cold medication. Sorry, doctor, but we did use those medicines you said not to, but yeah. So you get it. <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were desperate. She was so congested. Um, no, she's always done fine. She sleeps, no problem. You know, da, 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 da. no, nobody in my family. Yes, I've had code. You know what I mean? You just get a super benign history, not indicating any risk. So far, that would mean, you know, you don't need to get the testing up front. Okay. So you could pick one of the evidence-based medications and then go from there. So, okay, well, that, that helps. And what would you say for clinicians is the best reference for those evidence-based choices for primary care? The medicines themselves. What's yeah. The like some, are there some algorithms yes. for, uh, you know? Yes. So let's see when they were last. There was definitely a medication management algorithm for the treatment of depression and anxiety, which is out there. It hasn't changed much over the years because SSRIs are still at the top. Was that the Texas one? Did a ADHD and the ADHD variants. Okay. Also the GLAD PC in the yep. in the pre, pe, the pediatric world, the American Academy of Pediatrics, sure. the GLAD PC was updated. And in that is the treatment guidelines for anxiety and depression. That's really thick and heavy. And I think it turned, it might've turned some pediatricians away, you know, because it was so dense, but it's a good resource. It's a really good resource. And there's a part one and part two of that. So yeah, I'll definitely put the the links. The other links that I'll include, which come from the ACAP is the facts for families. And I think those are helpful as far as you know, side effects and what things to look for. So I'll, I'll put in links for that. So, well, yes. thank you so much for that heavy meal, <laughs> which I'm going to, I'm going to pair with a gin and tonic perhaps. <laughs> uh, it must be five o'clock somewhere. I'm probably not yet in 
you know, Michigan, but. <laughs> oh, well, thank yeah. you. I, it's definitely food for thought and I'm going to try and, and synthesize the takeaways. And then before I post it, I'm going to send it your way for you to double check it, make sure that I, you know, want to make sure that I'm telling it correctly because it is complicated. So just a fun thing, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, like pre-residency, what would you tell yourself? Oh, gosh. Oh, I certainly wouldn't say don't go into medicine. I know lots of physicians say that. I wouldn't say that. You know, I think we working moms will always regret the kindness with our kids. So I think that I might say to the younger self, you know, just make sure to balance whatever you can. And then the second thing is make sure that the job you're going to feels like it's worth leaving your family at home. That's what I would hope for all working moms is that if you're going to be working out of the home and leaving your family, make sure you feel like the work that you're doing is worthwhile or make it worthwhile. Make sure that at the end of the day, even after you're exhausted, you know, you feel like you've, you've given it your best. That's, that's great advice. And I would piggyback on that is if you're able to work part-time for a period of time while your kids are younger and you can afford to do that, it's like a, a true gift to self. And also choose your partners wisely. You know, whoever is going to spend the bulk of time with your kids when you're not there, trust them and and know that they're going to be there. My kids adore their dad because he, you know, <laughs> he did all the stuff that I couldn't do. He was the room dad at school and my best decision ever was who I chose to to marry. So I, I would add that on. So well listen so I have a funny story. Oh Can go I ahead. Really, really quick funny story. So my husband was an ER doc and then became medical director. So it was very hard for him to be around <laughs> as much. Although the girls, my three girls don't remember it that way, but that's it's a good thing memories sometimes are not that great here's how I'm getting him back so he's in sort of partial retirement right now and we just got a dog and um I'm a little spent having always taken care of something and although this dog is the cutest thing on the earth I really don't want to be the one getting up at six o'clock in the morning to walk the dog and I really uh, I want to come home and go do my yoga and not have to so I turned to my semi-retired husband and I said, okay, I raise the first dog and the first three kids, despite having a job, you're raising this guy. <laughs> Seems so only fair. He was only fair to me. So he's got the dog this time. <laughs> well, I hope that I hope that you have plenty of time to enjoy walking the dog, doing your yoga and I appreciate you taking time because I know you're a very busy woman. So thank you so much for helping me kind of keep my brain going. <laughs> so It's great. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Phew. That was a lot to digest. So I'm not going to lie. This is super tricky stuff for me, but I think it's really important. So here goes. Number one. Pharmacogenomics, sometimes called pharmacogenetics, studies the role of certain relevant genes in drug response. The two main categories of relevant genes that we need to think about are pharmacogenetic genes, or PK genes, and pharmacodynamic genes, or PD genes. The PK genes code for the enzymes that metabolize medications 
whereas PD genes code for the proteins that are the target of medications, such as transporter molecules or receptors that are often the targets. This field of study is not unique to psychiatry, although for this discussion, that is the focus. So I know that was a lot to digest right from the get-go. Number two, the industry's detailing can be misleading, informing practitioners that the results should be used to select medications from the green, yellow, and red bins that we all have seen those reports instead of directing physicians to actually look at the genes that are relevant to your medication selection to help you with dosing, monitoring, etc. And this is the one sometimes I think if we're showing these reports to parents, they're like, oh, use the green medication, that'll work. But stay tuned because there's more information about those bins coming up. Number three, the studies indicate that among the genes that are commercial panels, there are some very relevant gene medication pairs, such as the CYP2D6 or CYP2D6 and CYP219 that metabolize the SSRIs, atomoxetine, and some atypical antipsychotics. And the status of these genes and the enzymes they code for will impact the metabolism of those medications, not necessarily the targeted effects that we're looking for. And they put an individual at higher risk for either side effects or clinical failure if dosing does not take into account the enzyme status. Number four, here's an analogy that might help, genomycin. So genomycin is metabolized via the kidney, and if kidney function is diminished, the concentration of the drug and its duration of action is affected because of altered metabolism. Knowing kidney function, BUN, creatinine, guides dose and intervals. So think of the newborns where Rather than a Q8 dosing of gent, we might use a Q12 or Q24 because of their kidney function. Knowing CYP2D6 or CYP219 profiles can guide dosing and titration of relevant medications. The pause for consideration, for example, is the agitation I see in my patient after starting fluoxetine due to the CYP2D6 profile because that's the enzyme that primarily metabolizes Prozac. Number five, the fact that desvenlafaxine is always in the green box, and here it is capital letters, does not mean to use it, exclamation point. It means that none of the enzymes being assessed in the panel are relevant to the metabolism of this drug. And the companies have decided to include all psychiatric medication in their bins rather than just the ones that are relevant. So the bottom line, it is not FDA approved for under 18. And unless you have good reason to support choosing it, find something else. This is a perfect opportunity to use your friendly child and adolescent psychiatrist through your state psychiatric access program. And I will include a link to the map of states with those access programs. Number six, Dr. Namro's article that's referenced in the show notes has a nice chart on page three showing the cytochrome P450 metabolism of common antidepressants and stimulants. Number seven, when you're taking a history, two screening questions may help you decide if gene testing might be useful. A, is there a family history, especially in first degree relatives, of difficulty with any of the medication classes you are considering prescribing? 
So if a mom says, I did terrible on Prozac and I tried Lexapro, nothing worked, or I had terrible side effects, this might be an opportunity to do genetic testing. B, is there a history of side effects to medications metabolized by CYP2D6, including codeine, dextromethorphan, pseudoephedrine, or diphenhydramine? If yes, there may be a CYP2D6 genetic issue in the family. So again, if they tell you that, gosh, I can't take this cough medicine because it just makes me feel awful, or I tried taking codeine for pain relief and it caused terrible side effects, you know, consider testing. Also consider if there's a history of unusual side effects to psychiatric medications already prescribed. And again, check out the chart and see which enzyme is involved with that medication and consider choosing a medication not metabolized by that enzyme. Number eight, consider gene testing if your screening questions suggest a gene-based vulnerability. If your patient has a history of odd or unusual side effects, or you take a look at the chart in Dr. Namro's article that encourages practitioners to still select medications based on evidence-based guidelines to guide you. So what my takeaway was that rather than just routinely getting genetic panels, it's best to check after you've selected your medication, especially if there's any family history. And I think it's really, really important that parents understand, and and us as well, that these profiles really describe the metabolism of medications and the side effects that might be exacerbated. So educate yourself and your families about the use and limitations of these gene tests. And Dr. Namaro, you know, spoke to me and in, in really, I think, reiterated that it's important to read the fine print. So again, thank you so much to Dr. Namaro. As I mentioned, I think this is a really meaty topic but it's one that our families are asking us about all the time, and we want to understand what these tests can and can't do. So as always, thank you. I know you take on lots when you are caring for patients with mental health concerns and are using psychotropic medications, but these profiles can help us. And if you are talking with a psychiatrist, knowing the profiles might actually contribute to a more insightful conversation if you've had trouble with medication in a particular patient. So as always, have a great day and take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.